But we're going to be continuing our Names of God series this morning with a message entitled, The Almighty God. We're going to be in Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2 today, if you want to turn there. Or it's on the back of your bulletin. I'm going to try to remember to put that kind of thing on the back of the bulletin in case you forget your Bible, so you can at least see the central verse that we're going to be going through. As I was preparing for this message, I read a Jewish story about Abraham. And it said that Abraham was born under the name of Abram in the city of Ur in Babylonia. In the year of 1948 from creation, so he was born 1,948 years after creation, and the Jewish people have very strict rec- or very accurate records of this um, from the biblical perspective. For us, it would be around 1800 B.C. He was a son of Terah, and Terah, his father, was an idol merchant. He would make idols and sell them to people and... You know, promise different things. If you worship this idol, it'll give you good crops. If you worship that idol, it'll make you rich and all that kind of stuff. But from, from Abraham's early childhood, he started to question the faith of his father and he started to seek the one true God. And he began to believe that the entire universe was the work of a single creator. And he began to teach this belief to others. Abram tried to convince his father Terah of the, fo- of the utter folly and stupidity of idol worship. So one day, Abram was left alone to mine the store. And he took, all the, he took a hammer and he smashed every single idol in the store except for the biggest one. He took the hammer and he put it in the hand of that big idol. His father, Terah, came back and saw the destruction and said, Abram, what happened? What, ha- what happened? Our, our livelihood is just ruined. And Abram said, well, Father, the idols started fighting with each other. And they just smashed each other all up until the biggest idol grabbed a hammer and smashed every single one of them, and now he's the only one left. And his father said, don't be ridiculous, they're just statues. How could this statue do anything like that? And Abram said, exactly. Why do you put your faith in a, in a work of stone? Today, we're going to look at another event that happened in Abram's life, one in which Elohim God reveals another one of his names to Abram. But God doesn't use the name Elohim here in this story. He introduces himself as El Shaddai. El Shaddai in the Bible means God Almighty. So why did this change? Why didn't God continue to just simply use the word Elohim to describe himself to Abram and describe himself to us? Why did he change his name? Why did God have to show another side of himself to Abram? Let me bring you up to speed of why God is doing this and revealing himself this way in Genesis 17, which we'll read in just a moment. But to do that, we have to go back to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, Abram's standing out, or sitting outside one night, contemplating the future. At this point in his life, he's almost 80 years old, and his wife Sarai has never borne him any children. And he's sitting there thinking about the future, and according to the rules of his culture, if he dies without an heir, without a natural-born heir, then all of his possessions, all of his family name disappears, and it all goes to his head servant. This is weighing very heavily upon Abram's heart. 
And God shows up and tells him that Sarai will indeed become pregnant and will have a son that will become his heir. Abram, to his credit, even though he's 80 years old, believes God. And that belief becomes a foundation of our faith. That our right standing with God, our righteousness before God, is dependent upon our faith in the Lord. The exact quote from Scripture is that Abram believed God and God credited to Abram righteousness or right standing with him. So Abram believes that God is about to give him a son. Now, if we were to translate this from the Bronze Age into today's age, it would have looked probably something like this. He would have gone in and said, Sarai, God said, we're about to have a son. They both would have gotten on their phones and updated their Facebook status. We're about to have a baby. Sarah would have um, had some sort of picture of, of her holding her belly with her gray hair and going, I'm about to have a son with Abram's beaming right next to her. People would have liked their status. They would have shared their status. They would have just put it all over the internet. They're about to have a baby. They'd go to the wall, mall or they'd go to Walmart They'd purchase a crib, they'd purchase baby clothes, pacifiers, bottles, diapers. They'd be posting all kinds of pictures of those things, and their extended family and friends would be liking and sharing and commenting on their post. Sarah would send out an invite of, on her, for her baby shower and make sure she's registered in all the stores. Abram would go and build a tent for the baby that would attach to their tent so they would have a baby room and get ready to, for this child that's coming. Then a few months go by. That excitement kind of dies down a little bit. And they notice that Sarai's belly really isn't getting much bigger. They try again, and nothing happens. A year later, Facebook sends them a reminder of what they posted last year, that they were expecting a baby. And it hurts a little bit. Their friends are starting to whisper a little. But still, Abram and Sarai believe what God has told them. Another year passes, and still no child. Dust is forming on the crib, and the bottles they bought need new nipples after sitting so long in the desert heat, but still no child. Another year goes by. The clothes they bought are now faded, and they're going out of style. Still no child. Another year goes by. Still no child. They will never admit it to their friends, but a quiet desperation is starting to set in. People who commented on their original posts are whispering that, well, you know, Abraham or Abram and Sarai, they're getting a little old and maybe they're kind of hearing things that aren't really there. Another few years goes by. Sarah's despondent. She's completely lost the idea of what God has told them. Completely lost faith. And then she decides, I need to help God out. I need to help out God bring this promise. So I'm going to give Abram my maid to get pregnant, and then she is going to bear a son, and we'll raise him as our own. She talks Abram into it, and the maid, Hagar, becomes pregnant. Hagar has a son. They name him Ishmael. And after the child is born, Sarai sees, it all, sees all the attention that Abram is paying to his son. Sees the, the, the way that the household looks at Hagar as, as being 
Abram's first wife now. And she begins to resent them both. So Sarai begin, gives them an ultimatum. They need to go. You need to get rid of these people. You, you, you've made my life miserable through this. Poor Abram. He doesn't know which way to go at this point. So Abram does what she wants, banishes them both into the wilderness, but God intervenes and they come back. And at this point, there's an uneasy peace in the household. And that's where we pick up the story now. Ten long years after God made Abram a promise. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew there is El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between you and me and will greatly increase your numbers. And Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we get to mine out of it. And I would ask, Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, that we will see you once again as our all-sufficient, our all-powerful, and our almighty God. Because if we have the correct vision of you, then we will love you, we will trust you, and we will have faith that you have everything in our life under your control. And we won't even mind giving you that control. So Father, be with us this morning as we study your word. In your name, amen. Now it's been over 10 years since God first made Abram this promise that his offspring would be greater than all the stars in the sky. Ten years. God gives a promise. He gave a promise to them. He gave it and then gave them this vision of the covenant. A smoking fire pot going between two animals. Abram sees all of this. And he gets excited about it. He tells everybody about it. But it's been ten years since that promise has been made. And since then, God has been pretty silent about it. Then all of a sudden, God bursts back on the scene and announces that today is the day. Today is the day that Sarai is going to get pregnant. Now imagine for a moment, Abram, now being called Abraham, imagine his shock at this point. He's like, what? You, I already have a son. He had probably settled it in his mind that Ishmael was God's answer. To, to this situation. He had assumed probably at this point that Sarai was right and that Elohim needed a little bit of help to bring his plan and his promise to come to pass. But now Elohim shows up and reminds Abraham that he is not just the creator. He is El Shaddai, the almighty, the self-sufficient God that rules over his entire creation. And that is a framework of our time together here this morning. You and I have had times when God has revealed himself a little bit differently than what we're used to. And he does it because God always shows up, maybe not the way we want him to show up, but the way we need him to show up. And what Abraham needs here is El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And there are three things about El Shaddai that I want us to look at this morning. And the first one is, is that El Shaddai reminds us of who God is. 
If you remember, one of the reasons that we're doing this, stu this study on the names of God is that so we can see the infinite God in small, bite-sized chunks so that we can understand him a little bit better. Because trying to understand him all at once is just too, is too impossible for our finite minds. Even with breaking it down like this, human language, the language we speak, 50,000 words or so in the English language, can't even begin to describe the awesomeness and, and the infinity of God. When we try to describe him, we're like, a, the best thing I could come up with is that we're like a grain of sand sitting on the shore of the Pacific Ocean with all the other grains of sand trying to look out at the ocean and understand how vast and how deep and how wide this ocean is. That is like us trying to describe an infinite God and that's why we're breaking it down like this. And because El Shaddai is so immense and so, so incredibly awesome, it can cause us to run down two trails of thought and belief that can be dangerous. And I want to bring those to you here this morning. The first one is, is that sometimes humanity runs the risk of bringing God down from his throne and down to our level to try to understand him. Like we try to make him human and ascribe to him human characteristics. The fancy word for that is an anthropomorphized God. It's a big word that means to just ascribe human characteristics to something that is not human, or someone that is not human, in God's case. And most often, people do this with animals, especially dogs and cats. You ever see somebody love their dog and cat so much, and, and they say, this dog loves me so much, or, or he's mad at me right now, or, or you know, he's happy right now, or he's this and he's that, and he's tr they're trying to ascribe all kinds of human emotions to us, and all the dog's doing is just wagging his tail, going, can you pet me? <laughs> or women with cats, especially, crazy cat ladies. Not that my wife resembles that remark at all, but, you know, crazy... She'll ascribe all kinds of, of weird emotions to, to cats. But people also do this with God. When I was a new Christian, I worked in what was called the recovery area of the electronic, electronics factory I worked in. And recovery did all the repairs. If a, if a circuit board came back, needed a physical repair or a quick diagnostic test, that's something we did. The other thing we did is when a line ran out of parts on a job. The unfinished circuit boards would come to us, sit in bins until the part came in, and then we would put those parts in and ship them out. And I worked there with a very, very religious, very, very Catholic woman. And we would have some great discussions about God and about the differences in our, in our two faiths. And one day I remember that we were... I was going to lunch, and I said, well, aren't you coming to lunch? And she said, well, I'm fasting today because it was a feast. I don't even remember which one it was. I think it was one of the, the feasts about Mary. And she said she was going to pray through her rosary during lunch. So I said, okay. And I went to lunch, and I came back, and she's still praying through her rosary until the bell rang, and then she went back to work. And so we started talking about that. Why do you pray to saints, and why do you pray to Mary? when we have direct access to Jesus. I don't, I don't understand why, why you do that. And when I, when I consider these kind of things, I, I try to think about it from whatever the theological truth is over here, 
because you have what is true. And then I come over here to the pragmatic and philosophical side and say, okay, how does this work out from a practical perspective? So I said, well, so we're going to pray to Mary. Is Mary omniscient? Does she, in other words, does she know everything? And she said, well, of course not. Only God knows everything. That's okay. Is she omnipresent, which means she exists everywhere at the same time? And she said, well, no, only God has omnipresence. Okay, we agree on that. Is she omnipotent? Does that mean she has all power available to her? She said, well, no, that's only God. I said, okay. So we, we agree that those divine attributes are only available to the Trinity and not to Mary. She said, yeah, okay. Well, you know, there are a number of Catholics right now that work in this factory. So if I go over to shipping and I talk to Jesse and I say, I want you to pray 10 Hail Marys right now. And then I run across over to the surface mound area and say, I want you to pray 20 Hail Marys. And then you and I are going to sit here and we're going to start praying Hail Marys. Which one of us is Mary hearing? I said, does she have voicemail? Does she, does she have some type of answering machine? And you could see the look on her face and go, um, I don't know. And she changed the subject. And I don't, I don't say this to, to mock Catholics or, or to mock this woman. She was a sweet, wonderful woman. I still have the pen that she gave me when I graduated paramedic school and left that job. And as I said, I, I don't tell that story to mock her or mock Catholics' beliefs. I just... I, I, I tell it to show you how sometimes we can try to bring God down into a way of thinking that is not accurate at all and takes away from his glory and thinks that we can fit him into a little box that makes sense to us, but really doesn't allow God to be God. And lest you think I'm just going to pick on Catholics, we do this also in the Pentecostal church. The Word of Faith movement is a great example we think as long as we have enough faith, as long as we, we say the right prayer and, and find the right way to pray, or we point to a verse in the Bible and you know, we open our Bible and say, well, well, God, it says right here you have to do this, so it's like we can grab God's arm and twist it behind his back until he gives us what we want. That's what the Word of Faith movement tries to do. And friends, God is El Shaddai. He is the Almighty omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent God. Consider this with me. If God were incapable, or excuse me, if God were capable of having a small thought, that smallest thought that God would have would be greater than the sums of every thought ever thought by anything ever created from the past to the present to the future. And that's just a small thought. To think that we can pigeonhole him into a course of action is foolishness to the extreme. Today, we hold in our hand 66 books that God supernaturally brought together to explain to us how and why he does what he does, who he is. And I love this book. It's said that the Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. But this Bible does not, could not possibly contain everything 
that God is. It gives us the basics to understand who he is and how we are to relate with him. And his plan of salvation, the, the utter and complete depravity of man, the need that we have for a savior, and the future that we get to have with him if we continue on in our faith. There is another extreme out there, and that is to believe that God is unknowable. And this is a view that God is so vast, so unfathomable in his ways, that we have to have just kind of a fatalistic mindset about how he operates. For, um, this is a view of Islam. Do you know that people in Islam have no idea if they're going to go to heaven? The only way that they think they can go to heaven is through a, a it's kind of actually a twisted view of, of their Quran that says that if you kill yourself in, in the service of a jihad, that you automatically go to heaven. It's actually not quite written that way in the Quran, but it's a twisted way of looking at it. They don't have that kind of view. They have this view that says God's going to do what God's going to do, or their God called Allah, which is simply Farsi for God, that their God Allah will either allow you to enter heaven or not allow you to heaven. Depends on, I, I don't know, what Moody's in that day. But this is their view. Interestingly, some Christian sects also view this, and, and people who are considered hyper-Calvinists, kind of like the Amish, they also have this view that God is going to do what God is going to do, and they simply accept everything that comes to them as this is from God. Obviously, we don't have that view in this church. We believe that God is good, we believe that God cannot nor will not cause evil, but he will and can work within the free will actions of other people, even if they're evil, to bring about his will. So we can't charge God with evil, kind of like some hyper-Calvinists do. Those are the two wrong views. But the correct view is that God is knowable. And if we have no other um, evidence of that, if we have no other... other um, evidence or, or proof of that is that he gave us Jesus. He sent Jesus to us to show us who he is. And that is all the proof that we need that El Shaddai wants to have a personal relationship with us. But he also gave us this Bible to show us who he is. And through studying it, through allowing it to penetrate our hearts, we are able to know who he is. And not only that, he gave us a member of the Trinity to live within us. And that is what Pentecost Sunday is all about, is celebrating the fact that part of the Trinity, part of the triune Godhead, God himself lives within us and makes available to us his power for us to live a victorious life so that we can be his representatives on his, this earth. And El Shaddai wants that with all of us. He wants that kind of fellowship. But it's going to be done on his terms and according to his ways. And we have to have faith that even if we never understand the whys, even if we never understand the wherefores or, or why he moved in this situation or, or why this thing happened to us, we know this, that El Shaddai is a good God. Another, word, another way to see El Shaddai is that he is the all-sufficient one. 
Part of the, the, the beauty of the Hebrew language is that words can have multiple meanings depending upon the context, kind of like our English language. El Shaddai in the Hebrew means almighty or the all-sufficient one. Practically, what that means for you and me is that El Shaddai does not have to draw from another power source. There is no other power source other than him. There's kind of a, a movement of thought today out there on the fringes of agnosticism that believes that if we could just get every person on the planet to stop believing in the Christian God, then all of his power would cease. There, there is that belief out there. And they equate faith that people have in God with some type of supernatural power source that, that God kind of leeches off us. And this is the same idea, by the way, that is shared by Satanists. Satanists believe that if we could just get people to quit believing in God, that Lucifer would be able to rise up against him and defeat him because his power source would be gone. But the truth is, is that God is almighty. He is self-sufficient, whether people believe in him or not. Consider that El Shaddai's power and glory existed before creation, before there was a single person to believe in him other than himself. So his power and glory isn't going to diminish in the slightest if somebody was able to snap their fingers and cause Christianity to vanish from this earth. Not one iota would his glory and power diminish. He is his own power source. He's not dependent upon everything, anything or anybody to give him more power or to make him more God than he is right now. Amen. We really need to grasp this. Because when we realize this, that he is not dependent upon us, not dependent upon other people, then we will realize that El Shaddai does not need your help to bring about his plan. He only needs your obedience to that plan. And you see that in the life of Abram and Sarai that we talked about a few minutes ago. You remember, they tried to help God out. God made them a promise. God always comes through on his promises, no matter how long it takes. But he didn't come through for them on their timing. So they decided to help him out. And they got an Ishmael. Well, who is Ishmael? Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. Islam traces their lineage back to Abraham as we do. But they trace it through Ishmael. The father, the father or the result of a fleshly work. The result of trying to help God out and not waiting for his plan. Instead of, like we trace our lineage back to Abraham also, but we do, throw, do so through Isaac, the son of God's promise. You see what happens when you try to help God accomplish his plan through your methods? What happened here? Two millennia of war and destruction is still raged today. If El Shaddai has made a promise to you in your life, he is going to come through. It's happened in my own life. I've shared many times that God called me to the ministry with these words. Study to show yourself approved, and I will make you a minister to my people. So I did that. I started to study. 
And then all of a sudden, even in the beginning of my studies, I haven't even finished a course yet, and I start getting offers from churches to come and be their pastor. But God wasn't in it. And I'd argue with God. God, this door is wide open. They, they'll, they'll move me over there. I can, or, you know, stuff in town. Boom, I have a, an opportunity to go be a senior pastor. God must be opening this door, trying to, trying to tell myself this. But I'd take it to God, and all I would get is silence. I didn't necessarily hear a resounding, Thou shalt not take this church. But I did not hear him say yes. I did not have his presence in it. I did not have his peace in it. Therefore, I kept saying no. And over the years, senior pastor positions would be offered again and again. At least in three of those times, I for sure God was in it. I thought God was opening the door. Even to the point of, of two, about two, two, three years before I came here, of writing out my two-week notice at my job. I had it typed up in a draft email to my boss, sitting just waiting to get, to get the word. But God wasn't in it. And when I would take it to God, say, hey, God, can, can, can they send like an approval letter here today? You know, so I could get this email sent out. You know, I, I have a schedule in my mind I have to keep here, God. I mean, come on, help me out here. And there would be silence. Silence can be the greatest tester of your faith. You know what silence does? It really purifies your heart. It purifies your motives. It exposes your motives. It purifies your heart to receive the Isaac that God so desperately wants to give you. But all too often we grow impatient, don't we? And we settle for an Ishmael. And I don't think that anything breaks El Shaddai's heart more than when people refuse to wait on his timing for his blessing. Jesus, may we be a different people today. Third and last thing I want to bring up about El Shaddai is that El Shaddai is never more mighty than when he is meeting us at our deepest need. If you do what's called an Englishman's search of the Old Testament, and that's where you take a, a word in the Hebrew and you search out how many times that appears in the Old Testament. The name El Shaddai appears 48 times. It is notable that 32 of those times appear in the book of Job. Job is a book about God's silence in the face of incredible suffering. If you, don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Job lived during about the time that Abraham lived, around 1800 B.C. Job was one of the wealthiest people in the Middle East. He was a blessed man. He was a righteous man. A man who followed God with all of his heart. And yet God allowed Satan to take everything he had away and inflict him with something that sounds like a form of leprosy. Job, within a week, went from a mansion the best, biggest, best tent, house, whatever he had, to homelessness. And he's now sitting on a pile of ashes that used to represent everything that was his. Scraping at the sores on his body with pieces of pottery that were probably very itching and very painful. He went from a man who was on the A-list, 
Everybody wanted to meet with him. Everybody wanted to have, have, be, go over to Job's house. Everybody wanted to be around him to somebody that people would avoid and, and wouldn't come anywhere near. And it gets so bad that his wife tells him, curse God and die. If you curse God, maybe he'll just kill you on the spot for blasphemy. That's a good supportive wife. I don't know if they had life insurance back then, but that was, yeah. And to top it all off, Job's three closest friends show up and proceed to tell him, it's because you're a dirty, rotten sinner that God has afflicted you this way. And for 30 chapters of the Bible, they try to convince Job that he is a sinner that needs to repent. And Job spends those 30 some odd chapters defending himself, saying, I just need to meet with El Shaddai. If El Shaddai, God Almighty, would hear my case, he would see my innocence. He would act justly and restore me and and put me back to where I need to be in life. And after all of his friends fail to convince Job that he's in sin, El Shaddai shows up. And ask them all a series of questions that no one can answer. Let's just look at a couple of those from Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. That that phrase there in Hebrew literally means, Gird your loins. You are about to have a scrape with me. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted, For joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the cloud its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed the limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said to the waves, This is how far you may come and no farther, this is where your proud waves halt. These are just the beginnings of the questions that El Shaddai puts before Job and his friends, and it all boils down to this. How can you and how can we, as finite creatures, who don't even understand the very basics of how God created the universe, question the way that he runs that universe? How can a grain of sand on a seashore Understand the vastness of the ocean in front of it. But there is one who understands all of it. And that is why we can trust our El Shaddai, our God Almighty, our all-sufficient Lord and Savior.